I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to another special edition of History Hack. We have a real treat for you today because we've sacked the actors off today for Sharp. Because rather than having them tell us how awesome they are, uh, we thought we'd have all the people that witnessed their hysterics and uh, diva behaviour for the entire run of Sharp tell us what it was like working on the other side of the camera. So we have another crew special for you today. Of course, Jason is here. But more importantly, Jason, step to the side because Natasha is on today because you've bullied her into it. So Jason met Natasha on the set of Sharp. So Natasha Salka, you were an interpreter, weren't you? Yeah. Lucky you. And there is a theme today, isn't there, Natasha, with the other people that we have on? It's basically Sharp's marriages, isn't it? Well, so <laughs> it, it happened to be. It wasn't deliberate, but it's just all the people that Jason asked, we then sort of said, oh, hang on a second. All of us are married. All of us met on Sharp. And all of us are still married, which is incredible. It is. <laughs> it is. Well, <laughs> doesn't it? Uh, Okay, so let's introduce everybody that we have with us today. So first of all, we have Tim Nuttall with us, who was, oh, Tim, you were a doctor on on one (laughs) weren't you? You must have earned your money. Uh, Well, I mean, there's not enough. I mean, I think I think I came on because of insurance that they said. And I'd been and I'd been sort of working locuming around this kind of world. And I got a call. I can't even remember where I was. But they said, oh, do you fancy going to to Ukraine for a fortnight. <laughs> I said, oh, well, you know, on a film set. And I said, oh, that sounds like fun. And I met Malcolm in in London. And he gave me some money to go off. I said, make your own way to, make your own way to Russia. And I had this sort of hellish journey, which, you know, if you want to, I could tell at some point. And ended up in Russia for two weeks, which then turned into three months because they wouldn't let me go home. It wasn't particularly that everyone was so sick. I think it was the insurance company wouldn't let anyone go home. And yeah, there was, I mean, and, and you just sort of get a, an, a, a, a sort of viewpoint on on uh, on why. I mean, I think what had happened was, was there was a funny strain of Giardia that had come down. The entire flu, the entire cast had come down with a flu the week before. And then in a nearby village, cholera had come up and, and it had appeared on the, WHO site of places in the world not to go and there were kind of you know a hundred British nationals out there and so you know so that was why that was how I ended up being there but I'd only been a doctor about 10 minutes you know I mean I've been a doctor 20 27 years or whatever now but you know but I think I've been qualified two or three years you know and I'd met Susanna in I think we'd worked in casualty or something in yeah something like that yeah I can't remember a hospital that probably doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> Edgware. I was going to say Edgware, I think. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it's sort of odd. You kind of turn all the, you know, and I met Jaquetta, who who lived in lived in Kilburn, and I was in Camden. You know, I'd sort of travel halfway across the world. You know, but I do remember it. It's just being, you know, and I'm sure everyone will say the same thing is, you know, you, there are single decisions that you make in your life at a moment where your ni- life is never the same after that kind of 
instant that you make that decision, you know, and, and, you know, it's, 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 you know, that shot definitely for me was one of those, you know, nothing was the same ever. Yeah, and I love the way it all began with you uh, doing a Florence Nightingale experience in the Crimea, which is fantastic. Exactly. But you mentioned Jaquetta, who, of course, you met and married on the set of Sharks. So, Jaquetta, uh, you were a makeup, you were the makeup chief, weren't you, on Sharks? I was, yeah. That must be lots of fun on a military programme. I think fun, fun. Uh, yes. <laughs> I actually, it was, in, I mean, it was the biggest job I'd done at that time. I was quite young then, uh, not as young as some. Um, I, I just think it was fun. And it just was Tom Clegg, director, obviously, had this amazing notion that nobody would notice anything. He, all, he, all he ever used to say to me was, oh, don't worry, nobody will notice. And it's like, uh, which still rings in my head now when I'm, you know, getting stressed and with very kind of uh, stressy directors. I, he, here's the echo in the back of my head is, don't worry, nobody will notice. Because it's like... <laughs> So I learned, I learned that nobody notices what I do. And um, yeah. but of course they do. Of course they do. <laughs> okay, we also have another shark couple with us. We have Sam Craddock, second assistant director for four series. So you did a real marathon on the programme, Sam. Yeah, yeah, I was there right from the beginning. Um, I was just wrapping up uh, The Orchid House in Dominica with Elizabeth Hurley and I was handed a book similar to Paul, uh, which was Sharps Rifles, and Malcolm said that this was going to be the next production, um, so I uh, just finished what I was doing there and headed back to London to get cracking on pre-production for Sharp, and an absolutely amazing uh, period of my life, which uh, culminated with me meeting Emma and starting a new life in Australia. Before we What date Orchid House was? Sorry, sorry, Alex. What date was Orchid House? I think I was uh, 90 in prep and 90... Uh, 8990 I had that down for, yeah. Uh, so just quickly, before we do move on to Emma, Sam, could you just, for the uninitiated um, listening, can you just explain what a second assistant director does? Yeah, so uh, in the pre-production, you're uh, working with the assistant director um, and the director in terms of getting the schedule, all the locations sorted, going attending the casting, um, and just making sure all the big pieces of the puzzle are in place. Um, and then when you go into production, you design a call sheet each day, which is, uh, you know, keeps the, the production on schedule. Um, and I always liked it's a bit like being radar on MASH. I was at the base camp and everyone would come into me and I would then sort of get them ready and at the right time send them up to the set. And it was just really just being, you know, welcoming and bringing people in, um, you know, and then getting them in the best possible frame of mind to go up to the set and, you know, working with hair, makeup, wardrobe, uh, getting through the armourers' tents and uh, marching them up to the set to, you know, to do battle. So, yeah, great great fun. And like you said, you met and married Emma as a result of shop. Emma, you were a set decorator, weren't you? Which I, I don't know what that is. So if you could tell us, but wow. And then you ended up moving to Australia. Yes, yeah. So uh, I was travelling... Um, at the time and the people we were travelling with met up with the film crew um, in, I think, south of Turkey is yes. where they were filming. Um, yeah. 
and we were employed by the art department to uh, prepare, paint, decorate the, the sort of, you know, the sets in advance of the, the, the crew arriving for filming. So it was just whatever needed doing. If it was um, helping build forts or decorating bedrooms or pa- painting from rafters, just whatever needed doing to, to be ready for, you know, for, for filming. It was it was great fun for, for a bunch of travellers. So um, got great experience, learned not, lots of new skills skills and met lots of new people and and, and <laughs> ended up getting married as well so that was that was a bonus and it, as you said you know t- changes the you know changed the direction of of my life so yeah it was three great is that right yeah three three daughters yep um so we moved back to australia in 97 yeah, yeah end of 97 we we came here Outstanding. Uh, we also have with us Guy Pugh as well. Uh, we're going to get some stories out of Guy, I feel, because he was Sean Bean's assistant. And also, like uh, Natasha, you were a translator as well, weren't you? Yeah. How did you come to be speaking Russian and translating on show? Well, it's like the Tim said, you know, those moments of uh, critical moments, uh, decisions are the sort of things that sort of happen uh, and you have no idea how things are going to turn out. I was at school and... Um, there was an option to give up French and do Russian. And, <laughs> uh, and so I thought, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do French high level early, do that, start Russian. And, it's, and I wasn't sure, but the man who was asking me the question said, you don't want to do Russian, do you? <laughs> and uh, just the way he asked the question made me say, yeah, I do actually, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, so I ended up doing Russian when I was 14 at school and carried on doing it and carried on doing it. And then lo and behold, uh, by the time I graduated with a degree in Russian, the Berlin Wall had come down. Everything had changed. And uh, so there wasn't actually a lot of work, even for Russian speakers at that time when I left university. So I, um, I got a one-way train ticket to St. Petersburg and said I was going to stay there for three months, maybe six, turned into 18. And at the end of that, completely ran out of money. But a friend of mine who I've been at university with introduced me to Malcolm and said, he speaks Russian. You're doing something in Russia. Why don't you go and, you know, go to the Crimea? And so I basically got on a plane from St. Petersburg to uh, to the Crimea once I'd run out of money in St. Petersburg. Brilliant. And can I just say that Guy's Russian is fantastic. And, you know, Russian is one of the very difficult languages to learn. And your Russian was always mind-blowingly good. That's what I kind of need to say. So, well, I get a lot of practice. <laughs> you do get a lot of practice because you married the lovely Tanya, who also worked in the makeup department, didn't you, Tanya? Yes. Uh, second year under Jaqueta and the first year uh, was uh, Penny Smith, the main uh, makeup artist. So... We're going to have lots of questions for both of you about makeup as well from people that have uh, excitedly sent them. We also have with us Tom Moriarty, who was the armourer for two series on Sharp. That would be the job I would want, Tom. Um, do you basically get to play with weapons all day? You, yes, uh, that, that is correct. Not euphemistically, of course, but it was, uh, <laughs> it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, I was young enough to be able to be pure art uh, regularly, and um, it was... There was a little bit of work to do as well, but it was um, it was it was great. I didn't, fortunately, all the really really technical knowledge fell to Richard Moore, 
who was the um, the advisor who had who lived and breathed uh, Napoleonic War armaments. Um, I just had to do the practical stuff, which was much easier. Brilliant, and also when all of the pedants start complaining about buttons and things being in the wrong places, it wasn't you that was to blame. Did you? I wasn't clearing myself of that actually, but you're <laughs> right. Uh, that wasn't me. No. But we also have uh, Tom. You met and married Susanna on the set. Susanna liked him. You must have been busy. You were a nurse for three series. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, very busy. Horrific at times. We we hear so many horror stories from the actors, but obviously they are actors. Maybe they're just exaggerating. <laughs> Having a laugh. No, I mean there, there were some. Uh, yeah, there were some nasty injuries actually, and because you know you got lots of people charging around and. Uh, uh, stuntmen mostly doing silly things. The Russian stuntmen were very um, macho, machismo, and would um, throw themselves off uh, horses and um, slink off very quietly. And you think you know, they've injured themselves, but they, they didn't want any help because it wasn't it wasn't the done thing. But yeah, there were there were lots of injuries. We've heard before that the Russian stuntmen were rather prone to like breaking breaking legs and things, yeah. and then pretending nothing had happened. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And last but definitely not least is Fiona Clegg, makeup artist on four series of Sharp and daughter of the director. Isn't that right, Fiona? It is. Yes, it is. Yes. Nice to see you. Love when people tell us about your dad's one-liners on set. They seem brilliant. Yeah, he could be a bit um, sharp, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Right word. (laughs) Um, And what led you to being a makeup artist? Well, my mum was, my mother was actually a makeup artist and it wasn't really what I wanted to do in the first place, but I ended up assisting her quite a lot. I know she did commercials mainly. So I ended up assisting her and I just sort of, yeah, I just went into it after that. It just sort of happened really. Yeah, I liked it. Uh, I'm going to start with Tim purely because I have a brilliant question from Stephen Yo, and I'm like, where have you been for all these specials? He'd like to know. Why does a production unit require its own doctor? I'm curious as to why you couldn't just rely on the local medical services. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, I mean, the, uh, I mean, as I said, the, the first one, it was this, you know, I ended up out there for insurance. But Rush, I mean, sort of Soviet medicine was very different to, to, uh, to, to Western medicine at that time. And, uh, and it was, I was actually, I mean, not, not rightly or wrongly or judgmentally, it was, it was much more, uh, it was much more sort of homeopathic, you know. So there was a there was a, a Russian doctor on set, and he was in this kind of cronky old van. And I remember he was he someone had gone to him with a stiff wrist, and he opened up this rusty tin that had all these crappy glass vials in, and he was going to inject something into someone's wrist with this kind of needle that you know that he just pulled out the bottom of you know this is kind of AIDS tastic at that time as well, you know. And I was looking at this thing, and no, what was going on? You can't do this, you know. So that was, you know, you know, which so that that was, you know, what I mean. You know, and I obviously trauma and things like that were the same. But you know, and I ended up there because of because of because uh, of the insurance that they needed a English doctor. You know, they didn't care what sort of English doctor. But I'd been out. I'd been out. I wasn't the first doctor to go out. I think there was an, one or maybe two that had been out before. There was certainly Tim Evans who. Yeah. Who, who who went out first off? Who later later he was a GP and he later became the sort of Queen's apothecary and things like this. You know, so there was a, there was a heritage of uh, 
heritage of good doctors before me. There was only him. All right. Well, so Tim Evans went out, and he and he and I'd known him because I'd I'd done some I'd I'd worked with stroke for him in uh, in his in his posh clinic in Knightsbridge. So I sort of assumed when he asked when he asked via me that I was going to end up and it was going to be very similar to the sort of things that he did. You know, and I turn up in this uh, ex KGB sanatorium in 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 outside Yalta. You know, wasn't wasn't like Kensington at all. And I must say, I felt uh, rather reassured as uh, Natasha was in the Pudding Club, just as Tim arrived, so that was quite good. She's looking at you as if to say Pudding Club. Could you make it? <laughs> I was trying to hide it from Dan, my little sensitive boy's ears. <laughs> oh, you shot that with the baby picture just now. He's done. <laughs> uh, Suzanne Prentice also, Tim, would like to know who was the most accident prone? Was there someone that just kept repeatedly turning up on your doorstep and you were like, what now? I mean, also remember, I wasn't, I, I, you know, Susanna had been out there already. Susanna had been out there doing everything anyway, you know, better than me. You know, she was a super experienced A&E nurse. Mm. So all of the, all of the sort of, you know, proper trauma and things like that was, was. Tim did a lot of sleeping. I did quite a lot of sleeping. <laughs> quite, a lot of, quite a lot, you know, it's, you know, sets really boring. <laughs> you know, nothing happened. Really? All night with the actors. Set. <laughs> yeah. So you know, the actors were quite good fun at that time as well. So I kind of go off dambling down into Yalta and things like this, you know, and then sleep all day. But the accident prone, the most accident prone things that actually I had anything to do with were the horses. And the guy that fell off the bamboo. Well, yeah, and the chap. Yeah, oh, I remember that. The, the horse, Ginny Perry had all these beautiful horses that yeah. were kind of. He was talking about the the stuntmen. So these Russian these Russian stuntmen wouldn't let you do anything to them, you know, and they were all they were all to bollocks as well you know they were none of them could move their wrists because they'd all been broken so much so they had these kind of fused wrists and arms and then you know and they'd fall off kind of 30 foot onto one row of cardboard boxes that had been used a dozen times before and had no semblance of cardboard boxes it was kind of you know i mean i spent a lot of time being very nervous for them you know, because you just kind of thought, oh, my God, I'm going to have to do a spinal injury in the mid- middle of a field, you know, four hours from anywhere. And they never did. You know, they were they were hard as nails, these guys. But Sean, he cut himself quite a lot. I remember I remember stitching up him a few times. You know, he cut his hands with the sword fighting. That was it. The sword fighting. He cut himself. And then we had a one of the crew fell off a fell off a balcony Russian. a Russian oh, Russian crew yeah Russian crew yeah fell off a balcony in the middle oh, of the night by the time this airs we'd have had the whole story because James Purfoy was there when it happened and... yes exactly so and I was because I was with James Purfoy and then 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 uh... not in a great state let me just say yeah, <laughs> yeah I know we heard that story and it was fantastic wasn't it Alex well, James did brilliantly that you, you were... are a hero Tim yeah I will have to say it, it's in my book oh did I tell you I'm writing a book it's called uh... <laughs> Crimea no, you, didn't. you can pre-order now from Unbound if you fancy. Anyway, we have to give Susanna the first responder credit because she was there first, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, again, it, it was our night off, so uh, I, it was a, a very quick, um, <laughs> a very quick sober up that night. But yeah, he was in not a, a good way. This he'd um, this chap had. I think decided he could walk through air and, and stepped off his balcony. So apparently, he was trying to turn into the next balcony to uh, the responses of someone. 
I think it was round about, that, I mean, I remember this because it was round about the time of my birthday. And my birthday is actually, a Russian Russians have a sort of professional holidays for everything. So there's an actor's day and there's a, a, you know, a journalist day. And there is actually a driver's day. And he was a driver. And he was celebrating driver's day in the way that only Moldovan drivers know how. <laughs> Not only can I drive, I can fly. There we go. <laughs> and actually written in my diary, which must be true, I don't know, he was trying to escape the amorous advances of Tamara. Tamara, that was her name. Yeah, Tamara. Um, so, yeah. I'll try and get a picture tomorrow. Do you talk, talk amongst yourselves? He, uh, yeah, so he, he, he basically just sort of missed and landed on both legs. And in first, was he first floor or second floor balcony? It was first, first floor, balcony. but it was very high. It was big. The, the first floor and, was... And he, he, he just landed on his feet and, and that sort of impact. So he had, um, am I, am I mentioning this? He had a sort of bilateral compound factors of both yeah. legs and the bone, you know, which means the bone was poking out. Um, and so, uh, not, not, not great. It's so limited out there. As, as Tim was saying, you know, you, 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 the hospitals, they, they just didn't have the money. We, we take you know, the NHS for granted. They've got everything there. They've got very little. And um, so this guy, you know, Tim, you know, sort of, sort of came, he was there on the scene pretty quickly. We patched him up as, as best we could. But obviously he, he was in a serious way and, and he was sort of scooped off. But then um, sort of the, one of the other drivers came back fairly quickly saying, you know, they haven't, they didn't have, um, you know, obviously with that sort of trauma, you, you need fluids, like IV intravenous fluids. And they didn't have giving sets. They didn't have any fluids. They, they didn't have uh, benflons to, to stick in the veins to give the fluids with. So I had um, a, a, sort of a basic sort of supply of that. And I just had to scoop it all together and ship it off to the hospital. That, I guess, would be someone asked about what was the most horrific one you had to deal with. I'm guessing it's him. But apart from him, what was your biggest oh shit moment on <laughs> when you thought someone had really done something? Well, me, me or Tim? Both. Both. I remember uh, one. Oh, yes, go on then. I remember Sean being kicked in the head by a horse. Yeah, Jacko Preston asked, did you see Sean get stamped on by the horse? If so, did your heart jump in your mouth? I love it that they still use the clip. I, I don't remember that at all. I mean, I'm sure it, it, I, my heart would have got in the mouth, anything like that, because we we in, in, we were sort of in the yeah, middle of, it was a, not a very nice place. It was damp and cold and... It was Essex. It was Essex. <laughs> it was pretty grim, wasn't it? And and I remember him getting cut and quite a lot because he's in the water and there's lots of sharp stones. And... Didn't the grip hurt himself on the horse? Do you remember riding down from to lunch one day? I decided that, that it'd be a good idea to jump on the horses. That was in Russia, and he was yeah. in that, um, that all-weather suit, so he had no grip, yeah. and he fell off and, and fractured his skull. But he'd never ridden before, had he? I think, I think once. I think he just pair, decided it was a good idea. idea. Yeah. Jump on one of the horses. A lot of the crew were riding back. Mark Genet, Martin Hume could ride, and he just jumped on, and it was slippery that day. We were at Baidar Valley. Yeah filming Sharps on it, he slipped off, fell out the back, and there was a rock right there. He smashed his head right on the rock. Had to be air ambulance now to Sebastopol. Yeah, um, Tasha will talk about her, her good friend, Igor. Remember Igor? Very good, yeah. well-spoken. Oh, yes. He had Lovely. to fly to London, England, some, some military hospital with him, and then fly back. Wow. Yeah, it's awful. Just right now. Uh, okay, Natasha will give the real story later on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And the worst was Dara getting kicked in the eye. Yes, I was going to say that that was, I think, for me, the, the worst because it yeah. came in the middle of nowhere and he, he had some quite clearly a sort of depressed fracture. Yeah. Bone. And head injuries, you know, in the middle of nowhere, big man. Um, and the ambulance was so rickety. <laughs> it just was never going to get there. So we ended up, so it's a balance really. The car was faster or going a rickety ambulance could only do about 30 miles an hour so we went in the car but uh, it, it was it was quite alarming being in the car with somebody with a head injury because I didn't know what was going to happen and um in the middle of a nature reserve yeah in a nature reserve and it'd been pissing down for about three yeah. days in yeah. fact I arrived on set thinking how are we working in this and I got to set Sam said you know go and wait and um, I sat down to write my diary whatever I was doing and all of a sudden I heard these car door slamming wham 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 really fast and oh that's really weird and then sam came and said jason ready for you and i was like what and then i f- i figured out that dara had uh had the accident yeah. and was zapped off yeah, yeah. and the poor enough. actor that did it felt so bad didn't he yeah. what was his name i can't remember i remember really funny drew schofield andrew schofield he was so funny he's done me in stitches apart from that but <laughs> he yeah, was he was really nice nice but he just felt so bad about it yeah, yeah that was very awkward but as dara said he was treated really well in hospital he was a great private hospital in antalya obviously light years ahead of what we had in the crimea so yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but he was offset for three weeks yes. um, yeah i think nine breaks in nine <laughs> breaks. <laughs> I think that was when he didn't like the makeup department that much. So <laughs> we were maybe pleased that he wasn't around. Are you saying like that Dara had a disagreement? Saying nothing. <laughs> okay, oh, this is brilliant. So, Tim, Alan Hunt would like to know, what's part of your job to give a ubiquitous lecture on venereal diseases to the casting crew? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a dad. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> I was going to say, I must have missed that one. <laughs> Indiscreet then, but I decided in a generic kind of way, but then I decided I wasn't going to be. <laughs> then I did I did get requests for for a couple of doses of something that yeah. people had got up, which... Uh, that he didn't get the lecture. Who didn't get the lecture, exactly. And a few, I'll roll a few questions into one for both Susanna and Tim. How much of what you dealt with was alcohol-related? <laughs> well apart from the falling off the balcony i mean none none really i mean actually people you know there was lots of you know there was a lot of drinking going on you know it was a it was definitely a sort of hedonistic environment but but interestingly people weren't that you know there were, there were you know there was none of that falling down the stairs and falling over twisting ankles i don't remember certainly no, me, me neither. It was all it was all on set, charging charging around, fighting type injuries, really, and, and illness and getting ill. You know, people getting ill. See, that was what I was going to say. I mean, most of the stuff yeah. wasn't wasn't sort of big. Oh, big, uh, oh. <laughs> was it? Well, you know, most of the stuff wasn't big falling over injuries. It was. Uh, wow. It was it was that sort of constant. I remember. I mean, I mean, I th- I think you know one of the first things I remember. I remember was going into the into the you know there were these uh, the the catering, and I went into the into the catering hall and into where the food was, just on a little kind of nosy around, and where the food was was just heaving with flies, and you know, and in the field next door was every you know you know these Russian 
squaddies who were who were the, all the extras, you know, who weren't allowed to use the toilets. You know, they had, you know, were taking a crap in the field next door, you know, and which was, you know, with the flies. Which, and I just got, you know, it was just a recipe for, you know, it was just a sort of public health recipe for disaster. So, you know, one of the first things I remember doing was was persuading Ray Frith. It wasn't easy to persuade to do anything. <laughs> to spend money to get a bug zapper. You know, these things you have in the butchers, the blue fly zapper. Mm. Like that, you go, what do we need that for? Well, I remember Tim that the the soldiers had dug a cesspit for their for their stuff, and it was really close to the catering tent or the or the van and the squadrons of flies. It was mad. We had the fly strips in our tent, and we were entertained by how many flies were dying on it or or dying and shagging on it and stuff. It was just like, oh my god, please! But by the third year on sharp, we've seen it all, right, Sam? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> the first World War historian, I'm sitting here thinking, did you learn nothing from, <laughs> from this? They learned nothing, the Russian troops, from uh, a lack of hygiene. Okay, this one, I love this one. Uh, this is for Susanna. Craig Gladwin says, who was the biggest wuss? <laughs> now, <laughs> I, I think everybody was pretty good, actually. I mean... Um, uh, Sean Bean doesn't like bugs, that sort of stuff. But yeah, I think I think everybody was was pretty okay. That's very tactful. <laughs> Chris Sorensen uh, sort of did a three part question that's really good actually. He says, "How did you deal with um, heat stroke? Because the actors aren't they living in more layers than they've ever worn in their life? Um, and was it a problem?" <laughs> I, I don't. I, I think. Um, I don't know, Jason, do you remember getting lots of heat stroke or, I mean, people get very hot and you throw. Yeah, for, for us, our, our costumes were like rags, basically. Yeah. We didn't have to, um, we didn't have to wear much, but the offices must have been. Yeah. Um, uh, just, I just want to go back to John Tam's uh, preparation for his room here. Yeah, we would, um, we would be very hot, but you know, we, we ran the gamut. We had August, it was very hot, and then oh, December. Goodness. December, we would, yeah, this is John Tam's room. Oh this God, is how he prepared. Um, <laughs> wow. He was hungry, he was going to eat the guitars. <laughs> the Marmite. Marmite, yeah. Yeah, a little frying pan on the bed there. Yeah, there was, uh, he definitely had a little apoc- apothecary um, uh, case. And his favourite thing was um, Fisherman's Friends or something like that. No, no, uh, Curiously Strong Mints. Yes. That was, that was a big you thing of Johnny. That. Yes. That, in fact, you remember how John always went on about uh, paraffin and brown, uh, Hagman in the show went on about uh, paraffin and brown paper. Well, John Tams always went on about curiously strong mints. Yes. So back to the heat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I think everyone's OK. Although there was the one day in September 1994 when we moved from Yalta, uh, from to Yalta from Simferopol, and we had to march across country in full kit and that was the day that uh, we, uh, Michael Mears had the argument with uh, Tom Clegg and then walked off the show. Remember that day? <laughs> I remember? It wasn't funny. Actually. I remember that day. <laughs> do. Good. Okay. So that was the hottest day I remember. It was 94 yeah. degrees Fahrenheit. No, I wasn't. So it says in my diary. So, yeah. But no one, <laughs> no one dropped down dead, really. I mean. no. I've been misinformed as the temperature of, uh, of how hot it was in Yalta. And so when I left London... They said, make sure you take lots of clothes because it's really, because it's really cold there. So I turn, I, I get off the plane in, in Sevastopol, you know, on this rickety little plane that was like Lindbergh's plane made out of little strips of aluminium that I'd got from Budapest. 
and uh, and and I'm in a duffel coat and a and a, and an Aaron sweater, and it's like getting off the getting off the plane in Abu Dhabi where you just get hit by this wave of heat, and uh, and uh, you know so it was it was unbelievably hot, and then on one day it just turned cold. Remember that? that incredible. It's like the wind it? changed direction, yeah. and it went from the hottest you'd ever been to the coldest you've ever yeah. been. I've still got a pair of boots that I melted the sole of. So I couldn't get close enough to the fire to keep warm. I did exactly the same thing where you, you got your feet over the fire and, and you realise the smoke isn't from the fire, it's from your boots. Yeah. <laughs> you got feelings, your feet are so cold. I mean, it's so hot I had straight hair before this photo. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, it, 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 it was it was incredibly hot, wasn't it? But then it would just, it literally, as you said, Tim, just go freezing cold overnight. Incredible. But uh, but there wasn't really much. I, mean, you, I suppose you just had to adjust to the heat because there wasn't really much in the way of shade and. Yeah, we just a lot of umbrellas, a lot of damp cloths. I remember people walking yeah. around with rags around their neck and things, wasn't there? It was yeah. sort of old school, keeping cool. Yeah. No, do you know what? I as soon as you said what your job involved, I have two questions for you. Who auditioned? Because you said you sat in on the auditions. Who auditioned but didn't get a part that we would have heard of? Uh, Rufus Sewell. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah, Johan Grifford. Oh, did he as well? Um, Ian Glenn. Um, Yeah. No, you you run out of names, Sam, or should I carry on? No. Yeah, carry on. Yeah. I know, but I thought he'd run out of names. This is what it's been like. (laughs) (laughs) That was all I remember. Yeah. Yeah. And there was, um, yeah, Mark McGann. Yeah, Ian Glenn. Rufus Sewell, there's one more, I've forgotten his name. He was really, oh yeah, Matt, Matt, tall, black hair, sort of looked more like the vision of Sharp in the book. He was the first biracial kiss on EastEnders. He was the boyfriend of the black actress and that was the first biracial kiss. Matt, Matthew, oh fuck, for his name. Anyway, he also auditioned for it. Yeah. And I won't ask you to name who it was, but what was the worst audition you saw? (laughs) Oh, that's a tricky one. The one I was most disappointed with was uh, Rufus Sewell. I, I thought he was going to be much stronger. Eddie Sampson would like to know, Sam, what was it like to work with Pete Postlethwaite and to be in the firing squad that kills him? And how many oh, times yeah. Mark Lambert <laughs> you sword yeah. to the cocaine door? So Pete, Pete Postlethwaite was absolutely incredible. I mean, he just, yeah, he just, uh, you know, captivated all of us I think just as soon as you met him he, he just worked his way into your heart and um he, he was a great source of comfort to us all I, I spent many an evening you know um with his room up in his room just talking learning about his story um absolutely amazing man and um the reason I sort of got into uniform to be part of the firing squad was as, as a way of you know a tribute for him really and I remember uh, walking down to the set on, um, and I thought something was going on because Tom was whispering into uh, Pete's ear just before the, the close-up scene where I've got to put the, um, offer him the uh, the hood, the shroud, and uh, I didn't know what was going on, so I stepped forward to do my part and uh, this horrible, phlegmy, tobacco-y, you know, gob just hit me straight in the face and it, it was everything in my power. I just wanted to, to hit him. But then I remembered I was a British soldier. So I just held that down 
and uh, stepped away. But it, it was a, a remarkable moment because I had absolutely no idea that was coming my way. Um, and then the answer to the second question, uh, Lieutenant Gerwood, again, that was, Sharp's Regiment was an absolutely incredible experience for me. Just the support that we had from the uh, British reenactors was just sensational. And they really got hold of that film and made it their own. Um, and I had great fun sort of going out scouting for locations and finding Tilbury Fort, which featured very highly in it. And Eddie Sampson in particular was really good at just galvanising everyone and bringing them together. And the group of young uh, conscripts we got together, you know, as part of that sort of initial regiment group that moves all the way through as the conscripts, that they, they were you know, beautiful group of uh, young people. Um, and, yeah, the scene with Girdwood, that just kind of really was a pivotal scene. That was when Sharp took power um, over the whole uh, film. And uh, it was a, it was great to be there to watch him sort of storm in. And uh, I think the scene where he breaks the cane and slaps Girdwood with it was, you know, very, very strong. So, yeah, it was always good fun, you know, where you could see a moment to get into costume and, and do your bit. Um, Mark Peters wants to know, we have we may have heard that the cast and crew liked to drink a bit on this set. Um, did the infamous extracurricular drinking activities of the cast cause problems when you had to get them in the right place at the right time? Or did they always manage to sober up? Uh, I mean, we, we always managed to get the shot done. Um, I think the trickiest part was where you'd, you'd, set, you'd go to knock on someone's door and there would be no answer. And then you'd sort of have to try and work out where they might be. And I think the, <laughs> the trickiest one I ever had was I could not find Dara anywhere. Like all the usual places, you know, I, I went looking and finally had to send his car to the casino, the other side of town at the outer hotel to, you know, to scoop him up and uh, bring him to the set. And, and honestly, no one would ever know, you know, he, he was a, you know, would always get you know get his lines done and uh, get the job done, but Thursday nights was <laughs> that was uh, the red zone because we'd we'd start on the Monday we'd go absolutely hammer and tongs and we still would work on the Saturday, so Thursday night was when most of us would oh. <laughs> have to seek some sort of uh, you know beverages. Yeah, that that was the suit. That was the Israeli Army um, night desert suit. And we all got those because it was bitterly cold. And I think um, Phil, the grip, was wearing that sort of suit and just kind of couldn't hold the horse. Um, but yeah, they, they were very, very handy. And you'd, you'd have to have a packet of biscuits in your pocket because you, when you, as soon as you stepped out onto, you know, the Asian step, it would be minus 14 to minus 20 ground temperature. The windshield would whip it up to a cosy minus 50. And if you didn't eat every few minutes, you'd, you'd feel yourself starting to, you know, lose your cognitive function. So it's really important just to, you know, keep keep the fats up. Charlie Drysdale would like to know what was the what uh, scene was the biggest challenge that you did on Sharp. I think the siege of Badajoz was really really tricky, uh, very complex, um, and you know um, very challenging weather wise. Um, and we were you know just really learning our you know our skills at that stage. So um, I, I think that. That was was very tricky, and you know comes across very well. Yeah. Uh, Suzanne Prentice would like to know what's the funniest story you have about trying to round someone up. Is it Darren in the cost, uh, the casino? Yeah, I, th- I think that probably would um, 
take take the biscuit. I think the the other thing I think came through in some of the early podcasts, but there was only one telephone, so um, sometimes it would be really tricky. I remember, um, you know, a couple of times, you know, that the actor would finally get the chance to speak to their family, and my job was to try and get people onto the set on time. So I, I was always very torn at that time whether to you know keep pushing to say or you need to stop or just give them a few extra minutes to make that connection and, and tell the people back home that they love them. So I, I would always err uh, on the ladder, give, give people that time because uh, getting a phone line out of the Crimea was always very tricky and, uh, you know, you, you never know what's, what's happening next in your, in your life. So, Did you ever have to tell Sean Bean to step away from the radio when Sheffield United were playing? No, no, that, that was obviously Saturday uh, afternoons normally um, and yeah, he, he'd just have the telephone set by uh, uh, through to the kitchen at home and the receiver was by the radio we, we just as soon as we could just organized a, a line for Sean for that activity so that everyone else could get a get a crack at the phone <laughs> brilliant what what was the toughest thing about your job well I think that just conceptually the whole piece you know if we hadn't um, met with um, Igor and the East West uh, Creative Association that the, the series would never have got up because they literally paved the way for us to go to the Crimea and then having arrived there there, there was this huge dichotomy between the Yalta Polycure studio um, work ethic if you like or the way that uh, Soviet era films were made and then what we were trying to bring to it um, as a Western production company and it was the, the hardest part was just trying to you know join those two sort of disparate parties in a in the most harmonious way that we could and that, that took a lot of effort from everybody and I think that what was so beautiful about it was that we, it was all done in a very sort of um, egalitarian way there was a lot of you know fraternity and um, we you know from the fires of adversity we forged these amazing films that have stood the test of time and I think everybody that went, you know, to to Yalta, uh, to the Ukraine, to Turkey, uh, Portugal, you know, we, we just always had the best possible intentions in our hearts. And um, I, I think that's what comes through in the movies somehow. Absolutely. Absolutely, Sam. Well spoken, Sam. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of um, sort of japes and complaining about conditions and stuff. But one thing that comes through when people get back together from, from shot is they never ever regret being on it and they never regret having got to know all of the people that they're reuniting with on this which is fantastic um emma you mentioned that you had an unconventional route into the crew had you seen any sharks hadn't come across it didn't know anything about it we we literally were a group of young people just traveling um through turkey south of turkey at that stage um, and I think it actually was in uh, in a bar in Antalya that we, we met up with some of the crew. Um, and, yeah, that that, that was the, the, the first that we knew about it and, yeah, ha- ha- had a great time. So had never had anything to do with film industry or that, or art even for that matter for, for me or painting or decorating or anything like that. So the, the whole concept of it was completely, completely new and, and very exciting for, for a group of young, young travellers to, to meet up with, um, yeah, film crew in south of Turkey. You starstruck when you met Jason? 
look, was just pretty starstruck by the whole process, really. It was just something so completely foreign to, to, I mean, me, I was only, I was 19 at the time, so I didn't, you know, I was just starting out in the world, really. So pretty much every everything about it was, was uh, new and exciting. So, yeah, it was great. Funny, Emma, one of the people, I guess your buddy, I don't know, I can't remember her name. She was um, in the scene with me, uh, fans at home, of where I dismissed Shellington from the dinner. Good night, sweet prince. I, I kick him up the arse and knock him out. And one of my, my, I was like the Hudson of the Sharp household. And one of my little Mrs. Bellamy's was this, who I thought was an actress. So we're doing the scene and I sit down at lunch and I don't know what to really say. So I say, oh, so who's your agent? And I find out she's an itinerant backpacker working away across Turkey yeah. and has got a yeah. part in the greatest show on television. Yes, there, there were definitely a few of us, and yeah, a couple of times we were we were recruit were recruited to be extras in the background of scenes. So yes, I definitely I think that was um, possibly the way that I came across Sam initially was through. Um, you know, be, being recruited to be an extra for the officers, yeah, for the officers', officers mess, yeah. Yeah, so that that was actually how I came came across Sam, um, you know, in the very first instance. So yeah, but if it's all new to you, what was the weirdest thing you found yourself doing on shot? Um, helping build um, a fort, which I think was that was that Salifki, yeah. yeah, the 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 big fort there. So literally building a fort out in the middle of a you know a, just a, a barren plain that was uh not anything I had ever come across before had you know no, no sort of you know building background or anything like that obviously you know we, we had great direction we were very much you know told, told what we needed to do it and just had to go and do it so building a fort on the south coast of Turkey was was definitely very unusual so yeah and and then seeing it being partly blown up and rebuilt was also quite unusual. <laughs> Slightly soul destroying that you weren't. Yeah. Same again, please. Yeah. <laughs> okay, guy. Unsurprisingly, everybody's just got. I, one of them was about how tall Sean Bean is, which I think we'll just look it up on Google. I think he's about the same height as me, and I'm six foot. So yeah. there you go. I was surprised apparently that he's not short. I don't know. Anyway, Mark Peters. Uh, no, actually, do you know what? I'm going to start first uh, with a sensible one, which is where were there many diverse languages in the group, and did that cause you any additional problems? Um, no, I mean, generally speaking, uh, I mean, Russia and uh, Crimea is obviously a contentious place, um, as we know in our sort of current history. So, um, uh, the, technically, um, uh, it's part of the Ukraine, but in fact, most of the people who are local. I mean, Natasha knows much more about this than I do. To the to the Crimea would probably have Russian as a first language. So there were there were there were very few Ukrainian speakers. We had there were a couple of Ukrainian speakers, but they could speak perfectly good Russian on our thing. So we didn't have to worry about uh, that. There were also quite a lot of Moldovans, and I dare say they um, chatted away in Moldovan, which is like Romanian uh, between themselves. But again, all of them spoke perfectly good Russian. There was one. I mean, there was one guy actually. There, there was one. Um, uh, the Russian stunt coordinator came up to me one day and said, look, we, you need a really good swordsman to be the stunt man for, a, I think it was in Sharp Sword. Jason will remember his name, but there was a guy yeah. who was basically a stunt all, all man. All this, all this, yeah, you mean? All, all this. this. 
Yeah. And he was a stuntman. And, and, and the guy um, who was this Russian stunt coordinator, I think Sasha he was called. Yes, Sasha um, Bilatov. Bilatov. He came all up this. to me and said, you know, you've got to have all this. All this is the best man in the business. You've got to have him and, and so on. And so I said, that's the one. And, uh, and so I think this was in the first, yeah, it's the first year I was on Sharp. So I think Simon was probably the line producer, if I'm right. Yes, Simon Lewis, that's correct. Yeah, Simon yeah. Lewis, okay. And, and I remember, bearing in mind that basically my, my function and role in this whole production was pretty fucking low when it comes down to it. And I didn't have an awful lot of status. But, you know, because I was sort of adhesive to Sean, I had, that kind of elevated me a bit. But Sasha Filato came up to me because basically I could understand what he said. And he said, you've got to have this guy. And so I went up to Simon and I said, look, Simon, you really need to get this stunt guy from Lithuania because he's the man that you need. And Simon looked at me and said, why the hell are you telling me this? <laughs> I said, well, that's because I can understand what the guys just said and you can't. So that's probably why. And, you know, and he thought I was the best route to get. And all this, sure enough, was on a plane not very soon, long after. So, I mean, it worked, that recommendation. But it was interesting that that, that little dynamic worked, I seem to remember. Some hilarious questions from people obsessing about Sean Bean. Uh, how many times did you have to say bastard in Russian? Well, I don't, Sean was actually remarkably polite, generally speaking, to almost, to, 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 to pretty much everybody. And also, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know if this is other people's recollection of Sean, but he's actually, he's quite shy. Mm. So he didn't, you know, sort of uh, get in anybody's faces or sort of, uh, um, to, to, you know, to behave in a way that uh, was was confrontational at all. He was quite the, the thing that Sean seemed to like doing most of all was standing by the bar. He didn't used to sit; he used to stand by the bar and talk about football. I mean, you know, that's that's the thing he liked to do most of all. I think so. He wasn't confrontational, and um, you know, the in the second year, so this is the third series of Sharp. Um, there was a guy that, um, that that was a friend of mine who was brought on to be third assistant director. Um, a guy called Giles Butler, who sadly, very sadly, is no longer with us. But the, the thing about Giles, he, I got to know him in St. Petersburg, and um, he was, was, was an absolute character, spoke very good Russian, but he was unbelievably foul-mouthed. And if, uh, if there's anything that, you, you know, it's a good qualification, there he is. If he's in the red shirt, and, it, and, and if there's any, ever a qualification for being a third assistant director where you have to push around... Ukrainian army extras. It's a foul-mouthed, football-playing, um, shouty um, uh, bloke from South London, which is what Giles was. And he and he could do that, you know, until the cows came home. And uh, every other word was a swear word. So uh, I took it from him uh, a little bit, but uh, I left it to him as well. That's brilliant. You know, he, became, he became a first assistant director, uh, you know, later. And so this was his first first. Uh, embarkation into into the film world, and he continued, you know, up the ladder and did very well. Um, but but sadly, you know, um, it was, was also struck down very young. Suzanne Prentice says, "Did Sean Bean let you try any of the pies that got brought over?" Never saw any pies, so probably not. But I would say that the one thing that um, uh, as Charles again, bless him. Um, the, there was a thing. Uh, again, this is in the first sharp. I seem to remember Sean decided he didn't like the breakfasts that were being cooked up, and so one of the things that I had to do, we went to the market um, in in Simferopol, I guess, and bought a two ring 
uh, stove. And I used to have to cook Sean Bean's breakfast every morning. I seem to remember that was that was my, the way my day started at four o'clock in the morning was with Sean Bean's breakfasts uh, on the rings. And I can't I can't remember what I cooked for him, but I did. There was eggs probably. I don't know. Anyway, but I got some secret supply and it was, you know, a thing I used to do. Guys, definitely underplaying his his importance because yeah. he was next to Sean every second of the day. Sean couldn't do anything, didn't do anything. Whereas the sword, the la la, I would come up and take a picture near Sean. Um, Jason, are you sure you should be taking pictures so close to Sean? I was like, ah, uh, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> I don't remember episodes that actually. No, 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 just joking. But no, the guy was so important, and and of course he, his he bled into helping us as well. You know, it wasn't solely doing translating for 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 Sean. He would help us with translation. I'm see there were there, there, there were quite a lot of interpreters like Natasha, and there were a number of who had been locally hired I, or, uh, from from uh, from Yalta and the Crimea, and some who came down from from Moscow. But there were only two. British Russian speakers mm. uh, in the whole production, me and, uh, and someone called Tom Lasker, who's a good friend of mine, and uh, and so we were the only two. So you know, they, they, we they, they made us sort of slightly unusual, but um, you know, that was the thing. Yeah, Mark asked, um, and it seems like it's a yes. Did you literally have to follow him to the market, to restaurants, everywhere? Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, I was that, that was that was basically my role was to make sure that Sean was happy, and I think that it was a key thing that to 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 to, to, to um you know to, to to look after him. And you know, it's interesting because, um, yeah, and, and I did spend all the time, and he loved going to the market. He liked it. I, I seem to remember he had a particular fondness of one antique shop, and was absolutely was was mildly obsessed about buying a crocodile at some stage. And I think I had to engage in some. It wasn't a live crocodile. Mm. It was in an antique shop, um, but I had to do some some quite serious negotiation. I seem to remember on that front. But the market was a lot of fun, and you know, I wasn't umbilically tied to him on a Saturday because, as I think we've made the point, he did he was umbilically tied to his telephone, which was on the other end, of which was a radio um, with Sheffield United's game that that Saturday, which which Sean used to listen to religiously. I think every Saturday, so he just been into his room and didn't come out until the match was over. So I did actually get. That was a question, actually. Did you have to sit and listen to Sheffield United and are you a football fan? <laughs> uh, no, I didn't know. If there's anything that's likely to send me to sleep quicker, it's a game of football, it has to be said. So I don't, I don't have, I have no football conversation whatsoever. So I didn't talk to him about football, but I think I remember we talked about lots of other things. And, mm. you know, we had a good time. In the, in the second series that we were on, Sean was, did live a, a, a slightly separate existence because, of course, he was the only man with a Winnie Bago. Third series, third series. Uh, in the third, in the third series, the second series that I worked on, and the Winnie and the Winnie Bago was driven by a remarkable character called Gary Fiddler, yes. who uh, who then became Sean's double, I think. Could he stand no, in not double? His double? He 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 became his everything. His um, yeah. his driver, his Winnebago driver, and his basically bodyguard. Not that Sean needed a bodyguard, but uh, yeah. But it's very, uh, Gary Gary Sean and I were a bit of a sort of a the, you know a triumvirate in the Winnebago, which was a complete wreck, incidentally. It was, it was I, I, quite how he managed to get to the Crimea. I have, I have no idea how Gary managed to get it, get it there. And the thing is that, with, I mean, one of my key roles, which um, it, no, we haven't talked about, because obviously it's, it's not really associated with Sean at all, was that I escorted the kitchen truck and indeed the Winnebago uh, on its return journey. It didn't make it the whole way. But I, I've, I've travelled across from London to Yalta by kitchen 
three times. Yeah. Oh and in God. fact, when I write my memoir, I was thinking of calling it Crossing Ukraine by Kitchen. Because <laughs> it's a journey I've done. And there are an awful lot of stories from that trip. Oh, all trip, all the trips were eventful. The Winnebago broke down. Oh, the, well, the first one was that when the Winnebago got to the top of the mountain pass, so we were barely even out of, we weren't even out of the Crimea. We were barely even out of Yalta. We get to the mountain pass, get, we get stopped. Not surprisingly, it's an unusual vehicle in the Crimea. So, um, and the Ukrainian police then, or the, you know, the, the Crimean police look at, uh, ask for a driving license. Gary Fidler, British driver, never have his driving license with me. Why would you? I mean, you know, just show to the police station a month later. Well, not enough cry me, you don't. So um, I had to produce my driving license like I'm going to drive the Winnebago. And they look at my UK driving license and they say, excellent. This is special permission to drive in Ukraine. So uh, I, got to, I got to drive the Winnebago 500 yards until we swapped again. And that's before it broke down in Ternopil. But it was a long, long journey before then. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Brilliant. Uh, so, Sid Jarvis wants to know, uh, how many cups of Yorkshire tea you had to make, Sean? Well, that, again, wasn't, wasn't entirely my responsibility because I, I don't know if you've talked about the remarkable Sandra and Patrizia. We actually dedicated an episode to the Well, it does, well it, they, they were largely responsible for, for distributing the tea and coffee. I think it was so, so no, and I was very happy to leave that to them. Yeah, uh, Lyndon does a very good impression of their Chai Malocco. Chai Malocco. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. Because, I mean, I thankfully didn't get, I mean, I got Giardia like everybody else, so I, I lived with that. But the worst thing that happened to me was I dove into the, uh, the Black Sea and was stung on the nose by a jellyfish, which I don't know if anybody has ever experienced being stung, stung by a jellyfish, but it was like having an axe cleaving my, uh, my nose. It was so painful. And so as we were living, living in a sanatorium in Yalta at the time, and I, I was with Tanya, and we walked up to the, 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 the little medical post there. And I said, you know, I've been stung, it really hurts. And they said, they, um, the medical staff there got a little bit of bandage and a little bit of raw spirit, stuffed it up my nostrils and said, you'll be fine, take that up. So I wandered up the, 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 uh, the hill to the sanatorium. And I was met by various people, it was a Saturday afternoon, and so various people, well, Sunday afternoon rather, and various people wandering around. Um, and they said, oh, why have you got bits of bandage sticking out your nose and why do you smell of raw alcohol? I said, well, it's because I've been stung by a, 
I think, um, a, a jellyfish. And I said, you don't need that. And I think I was, I, I was that, that looking for Suzanne, but I think, you know, like everybody else, she was quite, in the sense of being, you know, out on the town a little bit and enjoying a little bit of free time that we got. And they said, you don't need that. You need an onion. And I said, oh, right, okay. And so they got me an onion and I wandered back, back around the corridor wearing an onion on my nose. And they said, why have you got an onion? And what's that bandage sticking out? You know, and I said, well, I've been stung by jellyfish. You don't need that. You need a tomato. And so <laughs> I went to collect a tomato. And then a third, and the third person came and I said, wait, tomato, onion, what's all this? There's a jellyfish. Oh, right. No, you need a potato. And so I had a whole salad on my nose as I was walking <laughs> up and down the corridor until finally I found Suzanne and her large trunk of antihistamines. And I was made, not much better, but a bit better. But it was a full on. Yeah, really, someone should have urinated on your nose. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jason. Thank you for offering. A bit too late now. It's fine now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here's Tanya. Here's Jason. Uh, yeah, I can get to that. That's a shame, yeah. Um, <laughs> how did you how about... find time to meet Tanya then when you were stalking Sean 24-7? Well, time was to made up. Ah, okay. Were you flirting over the top of Sean Bean's head then? No, my head. <laughs> Ta- Tanya was my personal makeup artist. So it would be over my head that he was trying to negotiate with uh, Tanya. <laughs> and I allowed it because I was the first one in to have British-Ukrainian relationships. So it, it was cool. It was cool. It was Being good. An ambassador. Were there ever any creepy moments, Guy, when you thought, I really don't want to be standing next to him right now while he's doing this? There must be a couple of uncomfortable moments where you just feel like a weirdo stalker. Well, I mean, luckily, I think the... Um... The situation that sort of was in, in Crimea, people, did, you know, um, may have been sort of aware of the British actors and they knew there was a production going on, but I don't think Sean necessarily would walk down the street and everybody would recognise him. So there wasn't that kind of uh, situation. He wasn't, you know, the, 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 he would be much more likely to be stalked in Britain than he, he was in was in Yalta. Mm. Um, well, strange, strangely enough, there's um, a, 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 since then. I mean, I've, you know, believe it or not. A, I've had a life after Sharp as well, um, and 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 I've I've um, become a documentary film producer, and uh, and one of the documentaries that, that that I worked on recently has been in, in Yakutia, uh, digging out a mammoth from from the permafrost, and one of the guys, who, uh, a paleontologist in the Yakutian Academy of Sciences, is a Sean Bean obsessive, <laughs> and is completely into Sharp and beyond, and. When I told him that I'd worked on Sharp, he shook my hand and said, this is the hand that must have shaken Sean Bean's hand, he said. And more recently, he sent me a funny cartoon, which maybe you will have seen, but it's quite funny. It was, it was, it was a, a, a thing um, where, where you have all the films where Sean Bean's character has died early in the thing and what might have happened had Sean Bean's character lived in Game of Thrones and then Lord of the Rings and so on. And uh, he shared that with me very proudly from Yakutia not very long ago. Brilliantly, my mum took eight years to get around to watching Game of Thrones because she loved Sean Bean. She sat here and drooled when we interviewed him and he wasn't even on camera. And uh, when they beheaded him, she was like, fuck that, I'm not watching any more of them. So that was it. She waited eight years, then she watched nine episodes, nine and a half episodes, and was like, done with this now. This is rubbish. Uh, just a couple more questions for you. Helen Brimstead would like to know, what was more fun, um, being Sean's right-hand man or being an extra? 
Well, I mean, I enjoy both. And, I, and, and to, to be honest, when I was uh, first taken on, I, I, I had actually got a place at drama school. So I was thinking about becoming an actor. I've been to university and I, I was considering being an actor. So one of the ways that it was sold to me was that you'll get to do some acting. Uh, and so, um, and, and I, in fact, the first, I think the first day of filming, or the second, I think it was the first day of filming, the second day of filming of, of the second series, of the first one I one, I was actually in a role and I remember Richard Moore coming up to me and I was in costume and uh and he saw he, he, you know I wasn't wearing my costume quite right and he wants to adjust my costume and he said oh god I'm, I don't know how to talk to him because he's only you know he speaks Russian and I said well, it's all right no, I speak English as well and he was duly you know sort of surprised but um but that was quite fun but I but I, I um I, I had the, the privilege to, to, I think, die three times in Sharp um, uh, and once in Close Up, which, uh, which, of which I'm very proud. Um, and, uh, and another time I was stabbed by Pete Postlethwaite, which was a very special moment to be, to be stabbed by, by Pete. And funnily enough, Tanya and I, just before lockdown in February, went to see a production of Macbeth at Wilton's Music Hall, where Will Postlethwaite, Pete's son, was playing Macbeth. And after the show, we went up to Will and said, we've met you before. And he said, yeah, where? In the Crimea, you were there, because he came to visit Pete, didn't he? Um, and, uh, and he was there, and he was very touched, bless him, having turned on his uh, show. For... That's brilliant. Uh, did you, I, I really want to know this one, did you ever play translation pranks on Sean? Well, <laughs> no, no. Like Sean struggled with Russian. I would think it would be, it would be fair to say he didn't. Um, uh, he really didn't manage to get his head around, um, like saying hello. And I mean, the, the trouble with Russian is there are lots of words which are quite complicated for quite simple things. The Russian for hello is drazvutia, and it's quite difficult to pronounce if you're not used to it. That's so I mean, you can say privyet, which most people can manage, which is a sort of hi. Um, and I think. Uh, I think he could manage Spasiba, Dusk Vidania. Yeah, and Spasiba, I think he managed. And Dusk Vidania, he often used to say, instead of saying hello, which means goodbye, I seem to remember. <laughs> and that was kind of, but he did get his head around Shasliba, which is like sort of a, you know, a slightly less formal way of saying goodbye. He did manage that. But ironically, the role that he had to, uh, immediately after that series of Sharp was in Goldeneye, where he actually had to play a role. <coughs> he had to speak quite a lot of Russian. And initially in the first scene, you know, with Piers Brosnan back in the day. And so I was quite surprised, you know, how much Russian he managed to squeeze out, uh, you know, when he had to put his mind to it. Tanya, Matt Bone would like to know who required the most work in the makeup chair? It's a bit of a mean question. <laughs> I was a makeup artist for um, Jason and Pauline. It's a big trouble. <laughs> I wouldn't say the big trouble. Both I them, um, <clears throat> so I, I don't remember if um, I had any problem with. It was always fun when the chosen men were being made up. <laughs> I think you so they, 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 they always there was quite a lot of banter, which was quite nice in the makeup room, considering it was five o'clock in the morning. So you know. <laughs> on that yeah, on that note, Jaquetta Matthew Edson would like to know who's the best laugh to have in the chair. Who did you look forward? Um, everyone. To be fair. I did fall out with Dara quite a lot, uh, but it was in a kind of like locking horns kind of, you know, he probably fancied me really. Uh, so he just, you know, struggled to be well behaved. Um, but basically even Dara, um, 
everyone was kind of uh everyone was a laugh you had to be a laugh there was no there was nothing else to do you either laughed or you cried there was no alternative really on sharp (laughs) (laughs) so with Dara was it um you haven't made me look good enough he was quite worried about how he looked I think and that's fair enough you know his face is very big on the screen and uh that's just the way that's just part of being an actor I think is you have to come to terms with yourself as uh as you know as people looking at you yeah and he wasn't always in the best mood for it and uh I think he he struggled being out there a bit actually he loved it though yeah it's like a bad self thing isn't it it's not about if you like what you look like it's how you have to look for what exactly exactly and and then I think also you know I'm I'm not I was I was a bit more competitive then than I am now combative not competitive Uh, (laughs) as I'm sure this lot will remember I did kind of like a bit of an argument Jason is nodding profusely. Well, I, I love Jacquetta. I mean, I must say, I was the most... She's told me off more than my mum. Not as much <laughs> Natasha. Natasha's told me off shitloads more. But uh, the first the first one, and I love you for it, Jack. The first one was we took a trip into town, and um, I wanted to give the driver, like, five bucks. He's like, no, you must give them two dollars. And I was like, yeah, I've been here for three years. You're going to inflate all the prices. That was the one. Then I've been the, told that, though. I've been told yes, you were right. really important. Though. You were right, absolutely. But it was only $3, but it was the third year by then. Matt Campbell would, uh, wants to say, you must have had an enormous sense of pride watching Sharp, um, seeing your work on screen. <laughs> what was the most difficult thing? So this can be for Fiona or Jaquetta. What was the most difficult thing you had to create on Sharp? I'm the, really, Fiona came, Fiona's done them all, you know. I literally rocked up season, you know, in Russia, season two. Uh, I had, I'd never even watched the show. I, obviously, once I got the job, I watched the show. But when I got the job, I had no idea. Ray Frith gave me the job, I think, basically, because I was cheaper than the Penny who'd done it the year before. <laughs> I had no real idea why I got the job. And um, and it was just an amazing uh, baptism of fire. And, and Fee was great. And she filled me in. And... I think, but ultimately the thing that we had to do more than anything else was, and it, and it's easier said than done, was make people look dirty and weathered and like they had been battling for years and chuck blood at them. I mean, that was the bottom line, really, of the job. And uh, But you were good at telling, telling us how long they'd been marching and all that. So you were always, you know, the one that set the scene and we did it. You did it. Very well. But you was, <laughs> yours was Wellington's nose, wasn't it? I don't even start with the nose. <laughs> that, that is a question, Jaquetta. Alex, uh, Jaquetta. Alexander Farrimon would like to know how many hours of your life have been dedicated to Hugh Fraser's nose? Too many. <laughs> <laughs> there was a time, the heat actually, that impacted massively. The heat was terrible for that. Because at the time, nowadays we use silicon. It's a whole different technical process using prosthetics. <laughs> Um, but back then it was latex, which uh, doesn't have breathability. So what happened was the sweat would build up under his nose. He would, well, you know, like any natural man would sweat uh, in the heat that he was under and the sweat would build up. And at lunchtime, I had to release. <laughs> <laughs> I had to undo the tap. Uh, turn on the tap to release uh, release the sweat, and sometimes that would mean having to redo the nose again. Um, so yeah, happy days. But it was—I mean, 
uh, it was an amazing prosthetics learning curve for me that actually to be fair um, and sometimes it was successful but sometimes um, I am proud when I look back at it and there's but there are the odd shot where you go oh god yeah that's a bit nerve-wracking <laughs> but they'd never let you know that it looked bad you'd ask and they'd say no it's fine it's fine no well, your dad used to say yeah it's fine you notice that's literally Always. what he would say to me they're all it's fine. He'd always say they're going to cut that bit. They're going <laughs> to cut that bit. You won't see it. Always. It's true. And they I, never did. No, they never did. You know that Hugh still has the nose or a nose. Hugh. <laughs> yeah, he kept one. Did he? He's that's all he's. That's the only thing he kept is a nose somewhere. That's funny. Uh, what was the Fiona? Was there anything where because you're working obviously in the middle of the Ukraine and we know all about the conditions? Did you have everything you needed, or was there any instance where you really had to improvise? No, we, had anything. we had everything, didn't we? We did for the first week, and then it all mysteriously disappeared. <laughs> well, the, um, I think that was somebody drinking stuff. Yeah, some of the drivers were drinking some of the products. I think that was definitely true. Can I just say one of the things I remember, actually, which I was talking about recently, because nowadays, obviously, health and safety, well, nowadays, COVID health and safety is beyond uh, and hygiene and stuff. But hygiene practices, although obviously uh, this is going to sound very cavalier, it's not that I didn't take it seriously, but there were definitely times where people weren't looking dirty enough and you would literally take dirt off the floor and put it on them. (laughs) (laughs) I just assume that was standard, though. I mean, what's better than real dirt? It's obviously the right colour yeah. and matches. It's perfect. You know, why wouldn't you? Uh, what animal dung? What doesn't matter, does it? Yeah. <laughs> Paul Witter <laughs> wants to know. Um, we know that particularly uh, Lyndon, the party king, and possibly Jason. I've heard a rumour were shit-faced quite a lot of the time when they were making sharp. Uh, and cocky definitely would be one of these. Uh, how much of your work was spent trying to cover up hangovers? It was good for the look, I thought. Yeah, yeah it, it made them look weathered. <laughs> I do remember a really funny story, Jason, Pure, James Purefoy. Uh, <laughs> I remember James Purefoy and Sean were up all night and... Um, and his call, James was in the chair first. Sean came in after him because he would never be first unless he really had to be. Um, and James arriving still straight, like straight from the bar. And he was absolutely drunk um, and couldn't actually really sit in the chair. And so, I mean, and he was really laughing. And I mean, we were, I mean, you know, you have to, what's, you have to just laugh, right? And then his first scene was on a horse. And I remember him going, Jack, Jack, come with me, come with me. So I had to basically walk to set with him because he was really not in a good way. And, he, and they helped him up on the horse. And, he, and they, they turn over and he starts walking. And literally the whole of his body just slipped all the way around the horse. Oh, was that the day they tied him onto the horse? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I talked to James just after that. He watched the strip through and he's the, the, the movie through. And he couldn't see that his legs were tied. So he thinks he imagined, <laughs> he imagined that. But he did fall off the horse, that's true. Because I wrote, he rode in the car with me that really morning. really slowly. He just yeah, really yeah. slowly kind of just went down. Really, <laughs> Definitely was wasted because he was in my car that morning and he was like out of it all the way on the drive to Bidar Valley. It was completely gone. So that's well, for sure went, what happened. Yeah, for sure that happened. 
There's a question as well about the most creative you had to get in terms of characterization. Would it have been Fredrickson? Were you given a lead on that or were you just told make him look really fucked up? I mean, the big things really for me, I, I mean, obviously, uh, what was the guy with the moustache and the uh, the proper uh, fop guy who was in... Um, what episode? He was in... Oh. I don't know. He was in the second series I did, so third series. Fourth year. Fourth year. And he oh, yes. had a kind of painted. He he must have been oh, in. Yes. Mark, Mark Lambert. He played Girdwood. Exactly, Mark exactly, exactly. Mark Lambert. There you go. But that was that was sort of the most makeupy. The really the most creative was I think for me when Sean was shot in um, with Emily Mortimer. What's that one called? Yeah. Sharp sword. Sharp sword. And he, she had to do a stitched wound on camera, <sighs> which is actually why I got to talk to Tim in the first place, because he taught me how to do Napoleonic stitching and how the surgery was different then. Don't know how he would know that. He probably made it up. But um, <laughs> um, he, so it, I did that for me. It's not so much it's most, I suppose it is creative, but it's sort of like that was a big, the biggest challenge that sticks in my head at that time was knowing that scene was coming up and it was a bit it was a proper exam day for me that day and um and I remember Emily was really nervous because she was worried she was going to put the needle into the prosthetic and it would come off and she had all those anxieties and uh and she was great with it but that I think it was things like that it was things like that had to be kind of realistic but you kind of just had to wing it at the end of the day because we never had any time to do stuff really and it was all just sort of like, just do the best you can. And, but at, you know, there is full frame, this prosthetic that you've had made, not really knowing if it's going to fit onto Sean, because I didn't really ever take casts of Sean or anything. Mm. Um, I'm quite proud of that scene though. I watched it the other day. It's quite good. No, it's very good. <laughs> yeah, because Sean, he's almost dead, isn't he? He gets a stab wound, he yeah. gets like a, a good bullet wound. Yeah, it's all and sorts uh, he survives. Whereas, of course he survives. The surgery was so good. <laughs> yeah. Of course, yes, yes. But I'm, I'm saying, you know, Harris gets a little bayonet in the back and he's dead straight away. It's it's, it's really perplexing. <laughs> you get that bayonet in the back, what, 15 times that day? Uh, yes, 15. Almost got there, yeah. What final one at the end? Uh, Andy Wilson, Jaquetta, would like to ask you about covering up the Sheffield United tattoo constantly. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, uh, that's just what you did, yeah. Isn't it? 100%. It's quite a faded one, anyway, isn't it? It's quite sort of. It was, yeah, it was old school. Nowadays, it's yeah. the Maori ones that are more of a problem. To be honest, it like, yeah, I don't remember that. I mean, also, there's so much dirt. You can just chuck a bit of dirt on stuff, and that really wasn't. It wasn't a big deal, was it, Fee? It wasn't like. No. Actually, it... people didn't have many tattoos then. It must be getting a lot worse now. Tattoo. Oh, it's a terrible. It's a nightmare. <laughs> Especially with the full sleeves and things like that. Yeah, I think it, it, it is. It takes huge, it's hugely time consuming. I saw a girl in the high street yesterday with Jon Snow on the back of her calf and I thought, you're about 20 now. Oh, Jon Snow. <laughs> Harrington. Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones, Jon Snow. She's <laughs> <laughs> on the newsreader. But either way, you feel like a dick in about five years' time, isn't she, when everyone's like, what's that? I've never heard. <laughs> um, Fiona, what was your toughest moment? I don't know. I, I didn't have it too difficult, really, because I I think I did Michael Mears, who was easy always to do because he was lovely. And I did one character. I can't feel someone. So he was the worst, yeah? Phil Whitchurch with the teeth, the wig, the... 
the hardest, but the nicest. Yeah, we loved him when he came on and it turned out that he actually was getting paid by the bill the whole time as well. He managed to. <laughs> Brilliant. He and he got cast in, and he was cast in Sainsbury's by Tom. <laughs> Brilliant. Tom, so many questions from nerds for you. Uh, you're like their man crush. Any live firing and any real rifles on set? Uh we did do some live firing, um, but not on set, a long way away from set, uh, just to see how much powder we could get in these things. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Uh, how much powder we could get in without them blowing up. And um, and they never blew up, so that was comforting. Brilliant. Uh, who was the biggest terror on the equipment? Who did you just, was a liability, health and safety-wise? Well, I, don't, I don't know about health and safety wise. Uh, they were all they were all safe, but you know some. Well, poor old Dara seems to be getting a bit of stick, but he was uh, he didn't like carrying anything, and if it was heavy, he liked carrying it even less. And um, he used to just drop it. Well, as soon as, as soon as Tom said cut, well he'd just drop it, and um, so there was a bit that that uh, caused a bit of work. But otherwise, they were all everybody was very careful by large. They realised there were no replacements. You couldn't get anything repeated. So, yeah. yeah. Andy Wilson, conversely, would like to know who was who was your pride and joy of the chosen men with the weapons? Who cared for it and carried it the best? So I have to plead memory here. It was so long ago, I can't remember. I think they were all amazing. <laughs> Brilliant. And Jason particularly, so. <laughs> I was pointing at me, by the way. John, 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 John Tams actually was was always very uh, considerate and conscientious with his kit. He was, uh, <laughs> if there was a standout, I, but I don't know. It was a long time ago. This one's good, Danny Iberg. If you could pick one weapon from your stash on shop for survival purposes, I'm guessing Corona Armageddon. Which would you pick? Uh, it would probably, oh, it would probably be the 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 baker sword bayonet so the the rifles had a sword bayonet on them which was bigger than a normal bayonet sword like but not not as big as sean's great big chopper um and uh, uh yes it would probably be there uh which gave you the most trouble given how corrosive black powder is how did you manage to get them cleaned after the big battle scenes do you know corrosive black powder wasn't the issue the, the biggest issue was we had a um, about 12 uh, german rifles which were about 25 years later the baker rifle which we had converted to fire electronically so they had a battery in the butt which connected to a fuse that would sit in the pan and you put powder in it in the normal way. And it was it was designed to um, avoid the misfires that you would get with... Um, God, I was young then. Anyway, that was designed to uh, avoid the misfires that you would get with flintlocks. Um, because in the very first series, there was a lot of trouble, I understand, with the big volleys that... Uh, that got fired um, when they came to look at the uh, the footage only every other one or every third rifle would actually fire so but actually we, we converted all these in London before 
before I came out and um, they were terribly unreliable. So we went back to um, Flintlocks. In fact, Tom, Tom they, um, they didn't have to wait to see the rushes because once they did a take, they could see what didn't fire. So, so we had to retake many times. But that right. was one of the things Dara opened a book on and lots of money was made. How many would fire in the next take? You take a lot of money on, on betting on how many would misfire. Right. Well, I, and, and what, were, what were the odds? Very long odds? Oh, I can't remember that. I didn't write that in my book. I told you I'm writing a book, yeah? From Crimea yeah, with Love. I look for Unbound. Pre-order now. <laughs> Alex, I think nobody will get drunk on this. No, it, because Hugh Ross isn't here. He's got, so guys, uh, there's a Selkie bingo game that the listeners play. Whenever he mentions the book, they drink. And Hugh Ross is amazing for getting it out of him about 60 times in each <laughs> <laughs> like, but yeah they're not going to get that drunk this time oh these are such take i don't understand any of the questions i'm asking you. uh mark peter says how did you obtain the gunpowder used did you get it from the host nation or was it imported how was it inspected for safety blah 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 did you have any problems importing any of the weapons into <coughs> so what were they uh so uh the the black powder we brought out with us i, I brought that out um when i came uh and the quality was was good. We never used the local black powder, um, and I'm sure it would have been just as good black powder, by and large, as black powder. Uh, but uh, and bringing the weapons to and from, I wasn't involved in that. That was all the production crew. Other productions, I've had to go cross borders with weapons, but black powder weapons normally are very straightforward. They're not seen to be a threat particularly. Uh, how much of a kick did Mr. Knock of London give? So, uh, it, to get the best effect out of it, um, you you put a lot of black powder in, but um, that wasn't deemed to be universally popular with its principal operator. So um, <laughs> we used to we used to 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 not load it up too much. Um, but oh, there we are. I loved uh, operating uh, it. Yeah, I loved holding yeah. it. It's so heavy and satisfying and wonderful. It was. Well, we, so we, we had to have a dummy of Mr. Knock made because the, the original was too heavy uh, for some participants. And um, it uh, because the original actually, it was a beautiful piece of kit and it was a complete replica of the original as well. Um, and very valuable too. So that, that got treated with very kid gloves. In fairness to Dara, he, it was only used for marching scenes, the, the resin, the resin knock. It was used for marching scenes and for standing around. That was, that was all they were used for. But for action, obviously, Dara took the real one. Just to so defend if, Dara. If it was being, and my recollection is, if it was being fired, he'd have the real one. If he was in a close-up, he'd have the real one. Um, but at other times, if possible, um, we would use the dummy. Especially in series four. Did you, Charles, like to know? Do you practice hand loading, and if so, what are your favourite calibers? I'm not. I'm, I'm not <laughs> hand loader. No. I'm not a recreational shooter. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> probably because I'm married to a nurse. That that sort of thing is frowned on, <laughs> as are many other things. Uh, so, no. You had? Did you have more than one role as an extra as well? Do you know, I used to get dressed up a lot and um, I always got a hundred bucks for it, uh, which was marvellous. At one stage, I think the 
the makeup department complained because they didn't think they could look make me look significantly different and everybody was just going to realize it was me again and tom said <laughs> no one will notice right <laughs> it was a bit of that but, um, yes also- i still Sorry, sorry, Jay. No, I was going to say, uh, a lot of the, the uh, Cascador, the stuntmen, were used over and over and over and yeah. over. So it's a, one of the big things of the sharp groups on Facebook. They're always pointing out who played <laughs> what. Oh, yeah, well, what's his name? Um, there's Hobbs. Hobbs has popped up in here and there and everywhere. <laughs> so, yeah, th- yeah, don't worry. You, you, you hardly barely noticed that you were there twice. You, have yeah. a, you do have a wonderful face for period drama, though, looking at those pictures of you where they've done you up in sort of the costumes and things. Like Michael Mears, some people just have the face for period drama, don't they? Well, the curious mm. thing was every time that, that I got dressed up because they wanted somebody who looked like an English officer or looked vaguely English. But if you look at all the photos, I look Spanish. Uh, <laughs> not, not at all English. But uh, there we are. You are just handsome, so... I just do anything for money. That's what. <laughs> yeah. Matthew Adams would like to know how many versions of Sharp Sword were made, um, and does it have some history to it? That's a combined question from Eric as well. So the the sword itself was unusual because it was um, a pattern heavy cavalry sword, which you wouldn't normally get a an infantry officer wearing. Um, but that, that sword, no, it just came off the shelf at Baptist. Um, and spares, we had one spare hilt and I think five or six spare aluminium blades. Which, uh, Marcus, one of us nerds, has, has one, doesn't he, Jason? Yes, um, uh, one of our historians who comes on normally when we're doing episodes, he bought one of the swords from Sharp Sword because on Sharp Sword, it, it, the sword gets broken. That's right. So that yeah. year they had to have a, a bunch of uh, replicas and uh, it was auctioned and Marcus Cribb bought it. So, yeah, he's the proud owner of one of those swords. Probably so, lied to his girlfriend about how much he paid for it. But she doesn't listen to this podcast, so it's fine. They want to know how did you get into film armory work and what some of the other stuff you've done? So I'm afraid it's the old fashioned route. Uh, I knew the boss's daughter and um, I was having dinner around their house and the, the father used to run own and run Baptist which was the, the, the firearms hire house and um, he said look we're doing a, a swords and sandals epic um, you're not doing anything at the moment do you want to come and polish some swords again not a euphemism and I spent <laughs> three weeks uh, polishing swords for I don't know some, some gladiatorial epic um, and then they got a bit pushed for people and uh, he came into the workshop and said Tom I need you to go out on a BBC period drama called Clarissa again with Sean Bean Sean's first thing um, where he had to uh, the particular scene that I'd gone down there for three nights of night shoots in Warwickshire he had to shoot an, a suitor um, out of a tree. So Sean was up a tree, uh, it's three o'clock in the morning, um, uh, with a French carbine. And, uh, I, I didn't know what I was doing, but fortunately, uh, sat around in the dew, uh, waiting to be called first time ever on set. Anyway, I'd been shown how this, you know, 1820 carbine worked and, um, I loaded it up 
went up the ladder, put it in Sean's hand. Sean, you know, action. He pulls the trigger. Nothing happens. So he come, it comes down and I, you know, mess around with it. Hadn't got a clue what was wrong with it. Um, put some more powder down the end of it and handed it back up. It happens again. Nothing happens. It's happened four times. And each time, I, because it was a night shoot, it was okay, but I was sweating like a dog. And every time in a panic, I just put more powder down the end of the barrel. And on the fifth take, this thing goes off and the tongue of flame that comes out of the end of it is just enormous. And uh, Sean, the side of Sean's face gets all peppered with black powder burn marks. And um, he turned to me and said, was it supposed to do that? And I said, of course, yes, it was. <laughs> and the director afterwards came up to me and said, said Tommy said, that was worth waiting for. It's the best fire of firearm effect I've ever seen. And um, which would qualified me enormously for uh, Sharp. That's outstanding. <laughs> what have you worked on since? Do you know, I, I, I have given up the whole business. I gave up the business about... Uh, I'm O'Reilly, 18 years ago. Oh. Too much time away from home. Understand. So, yeah, my wife made me. No, she didn't, actually. <laughs> I, uh, I did. So, and, and, you know, looking back at things like this, it does make you wonder, actually, whether you should have just carried on with it. I had a lot more fun. Can I, I asked as I remember, you were about to go and study Arabic at Durham. I remember. I was, and and Simon Lewis very kindly let me fly out uh, a week early to go and um, to go to the. No, hold on. No, that was the first one. I did. Sorry, I did go to Durham to read Arabic, and I got there, and I find I had to spend much too long too long learning by rote, um, so I switched to philosophy. And uh, and that was very much easier. And I had a marvellous time. So I, the, I had an interview with the head of philosophy at Durham, who, um, who was a very sensible and wise chap, as you would expect. And I had been primed for this interview by uh, a chap I was living with, who was a third year philosophy student. And he said, um, just tell him that you want to learn how to think. Oh, that's a great line. So I went for the interview and I trotted that out. He, just, he looked at me and he said, you will have to do some work as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I had a lovely time. Brilliant. And then we've just got a few questions for Natasha. This is Salki. It's your turn. You have hidden from us for about eight reunions now behind Jason's uh, sharp screen which I'm guessing you have to look at every day of your life. No, it's packable, upable. <laughs> uh, I'm guessing it's on pain of death. She makes you pack it away as well. Yes, uh, yes I, I abuse her and, and denigrate her every second for making me put away my sharp stuff. <laughs> does, that live, does that live on the bedroom ceiling, perhaps, Jason? <laughs> no, it gets packed in a box and gets put underneath the couch and is only taken out for podcasts or living history reenactments or whatever. Which is every day of his life. Basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mark Vikers would like to know, Natasha, did you think you'd still be talking about Sharp in 2020? <laughs> She's checking her head like, no. <laughs> it was, I mean, 
it was absolutely incredible and exciting time and being young is incredible and, and exciting and things that we do while we're young i don't think anybody ever thought sort of far and beyond you know what will come of it it was just really fun incredibly difficult for so many reasons like you hear everybody's point of view whether it's members of the crew or um cast but it was unforgettable and just you know seeing people again and again now it's it's amazing don't to um, know which actors slash actresses did you interpret for well, pretty much everybody who would come into a tent and the guy will let me know, probably will back me up on that. Yes, you are allocated to either a certain person or a department, but in general, you know, it's when you're a translator, it's kind of the borders blurred and anybody would use you whenever they need you, whether you are off work or working or you know whoever is nearby the borrow of tom's you... euphemisms you're a tongue for hire that's exactly <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant uh so paul asks as well we've heard a myriad different accents we've had irishman scotsman spanish french how did you understand a word of anything that they were going on about? Was it difficult? Was it a challenge struggling to understand all these different nationalities in English? Um, I think, well, I mean, at the time it wasn't something that I remembered, but uh, because predominantly I had to uh, speak to, you know, like Jaquetta, for example, she would use me to translate or somebody, but actors, of course, like I remember... Um, the uh, Liverpudlian guys, the Scousers, that was just something else. But then I've learned that it wasn't just me, it was English people who couldn't understand them either, you know, so that was okay. They're, they're in a bubble all on their own, no one understands them. Unicorn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, and Tim would like to know also as well, if you were translating for like a technical language like for a camera department or something was that difficult as well to do the terminology well in fact i always say my memories of being a translator for makeup department was such joy because it was it wasn't even a job you know it was like just hanging and being like chatting to all the actors that would come in and we're the best department by miles absolutely (laughs) it was so much fun you know and it was where the actors would also sort of not come to relax but jacketta will say you know you have to put them in good mood and like joke and settle them for the day so it was always the department where people would also come to relax and for gossip and, you know, probably makeup and costume, right? The rest, you know, and plus you always kind of tent warms, you know, whereas other departments are out in the open. So my first, when my friend asked me if I wanted to be involved um, in on sharp because previously i had uh some experience working on um tv productions um they asked me to be a translator for the makeup department however when i started at my first day they just shoved me into the uh camera department in fact i was a translator for a director of photography and the sparks you know 
And that was so challenging for somebody who, you know, is yet to train as a translator because to save money, they were basically hiring very young people, unexperienced people, you know, and suddenly being bombarded by the lingo that Sparkies use. I mean, Sparkies, who are Sparkies? What's Spark? Spark? You know, yeah, thank you, Jason. You're translating for me now, but I'm just saying at the time, Sparks, you know Sparks. Yeah, okay, I know what Sparks are, but it didn't make sense. Like, pass me the legs. What legs? You know, apple box, <laughs> like cherry picker. And you're constantly like blonde, you know, like you're then yet to learn that it's actually the lighting terms, the equipment terms, you know, and that was so hard. And working for Ivan Strasberg, who is incredible, He's uh, uh, fantastic, you know, at his job, but he works at the speed of light. He's so fast and furious. And, like, just being there, you're caught like a deer in the lights where he's like, this, this, this. And you're like, what? Uh, so you just had to, you know. But after a while, because the Russian crew, they're professionals in their field as well. So they were guessing most of the time the things that I couldn't translate. So after the first year, when I then went on working for the camera department, oh, I also worked as a translator for the art department, for Phil uh, and Andrew Moller, literally for a few weeks before the production started on year two. And that was nothing I... Feared nothing after spending the first year with, you know, DP and electricians. And it was like makeup, ha ha, that would be easy. And it was, it was a joy. Uh, did you, oh, Guy as well, actually, did you end up making any money on the side giving lessons in English slash Russian? Or was everyone just right. Wait, What, when we were on Sharp, when he had to work yeah. an 80 hour week? I don't actually remember having an awful lot of time on the side, except occasionally to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> I'd ask that question. I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure. I think by the time they'd finished working, they just wanted to get drunk. I remember actually clearly coming back one time after night shoot, dirty, smelling of smoke, muddy boots, bloody frozen to death in a in a uh, elevator and meeting uh, one of the uh, interpreters working at the office and it's like uh, office rats and field mice that's what we used to say you know they were like so always you know oh it's lunchtime now you know and we're like what lunch you know what what time is it now sometimes it was literally going you know straight from work to partying from partying to to filming so it was mad what was your favorite day on set best memory you have the whole thing is one fantastic day and memory really so many i think the fact that we all become like a big family, there was no divide. By the last year that they were filming in Crimea, I think it was just a big family. There was no them and us, English or Russians, you know. And I think because we lived in the sanatorium, which was quite uh, far away from the center, of Yalta, uh, we were isolated and lack of hours free time. We were all 
kind of in a big brother house, you know, where <laughs> we, well, yeah, since this program came years after, but that's how it so used to no be. Flushing toilets. We used to, you know, entertain ourselves free time. People used to invent, invent their own games and fun. And, and yeah, Big Brother probably were watched as well by the, you know, KGB. And uh, so, yeah, Big Brother in many sense of this name of the program, really. And it was the KGB sanatorium, wasn't it? Yes, the, the it was. Yeah, the KGB sanatorium, so. yeah, I think so. The fact that we were... The fact that right. we were away bonded so well, and it, that was the best memories, you know, like being a big family. Now, I was just remembering a really funny memory is every Friday night. There was a, I'm not sure if she watched, she was the set decorator, maybe, Bryony. Bryony, what was her surname? And she went into town and she bought a deep fat fryer. And we used to have, and used to be able to go to the harbour and buy caviar in these jars that were about this big, for about $20. And we used to have chip and caviar sandwiches every Friday. Ruined me. Ruined me for caviar, that has. <laughs> In fact, that was my first three months of pregnancy. That's all I could eat, tomato juice and caviar, because everything else was making me feel sick and unwell. So now when I've received an email from my favorite restaurant here in London, it's like three uh, 20 grams of caviar and it's like extortionate amount no, of money. Okay. I'm like, no. what's the yeah. point? Yeah. What's the point? Did you bring a jar, a jar back, Jack? <laughs> Sorry? Did you bring a jar back to England with you? I bought many jars back. Oh, yeah. well, They're all gone now, though. We need to go back. No, no. <laughs> you wouldn't buy it even now. You know, no. I even like 10, 15 years ago when I used to go back, you couldn't buy it for... It was just the fluke. It was madness of sharp. <laughs> it was madness. And with chips, it's amazing. You'd never do that, would you? Nah. Sean <laughs> Bean particularly liked caviar and crisps. Yeah. Particular favourite. It's a dick. <laughs> yeah. In fact, it was, as I mentioned a bunch of times, it was actually bootleg poached caviar. So you didn't go to the shop to get it. Some guy arrived with a box full of jars and we, oh, yeah, absolutely. we bought it in the, the, the lounge there. But yeah. yeah. Caviar and chips is a brilliant story from James told us last time. <laughs> Not like Russians have it on half an egg with three little tiny <laughs> eggs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the next time I see that Yorkshire tea advert where Sean's going, do it for Yorkshire, I'm going to be like, you hypocrite with your caviar dip like it's salsa on your crisps. Well, he's a, he's a great man, Charles, Sean. Let's, we can't is, be knocking yeah. on Yorkshire. No, he was absolutely lovely when he came on. Uh, I remember one story. Can I just tell a brief story about <laughs> Sean and Bean oh, Donnelly? Yeah. Just, just a moment. Because I remember Sean was cold one day. There was a snap cold and I wore a padded shirt uh, to set because you know, it was my shirt and I was, you know, cold. And I, But when Sean went wanted to go home, he said, oh, I like that shirt. Can I have that shirt? Can I wear that shirt? And so he took my shirt. and. Blame me, he was wearing it for the rest of the shoot. <laughs> <laughs> he carried on wearing it, carried on wearing it, carried on wearing it. Then, years later, um, I when when we had our first child, I phoned up his agent and said, I want Sean's number, just to tell him that, you know, from Sharp, there is a baby and all this sort of business. Phone him up, get his phone number. I was living in Russia at the time, but he phoned my flat in London and said, uh, yeah, left a message. My tenant nearly fell off her seat when Sean Bean phoned up to find out the thing. Anyway, so a, a few weeks later, I had his number, and uh, and I met up with him 
this was in 2005. And we had a lovely drink and uh, settled down there and you returned the shirt. Wow. <laughs> Excellent. That's brilliant because he actually has a basement full of crap from Sharp. I don't know if you, maybe you were with him when he bought it, but he was telling us about buying a hammer for 20 pence or something in the market. Yeah, I don't remember that story, but I mean, yeah. He, 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 Still got he, it. He used to like to buy, you know, yeah, shit. Well, there you go. And the hornblower lot complained that when they got to the Crimea, you lot had bought everything from the market and there was nothing left. No. Oh, well. And the price was inflated by Jason and other people, Jaquetta. <laughs> no, not Jaquetta. <laughs> no, Jaquetta, I'm saying Jaquetta. Jaquetta tried to save the economy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I totally agree. Brilliant. <laughs> Guys, brilliant. Thank you. I'll stop recording. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.